Footballers is a group with a lot of pain throughout their professional life. The former St. Pauli and 1860 Munich player Moritz Wolfs wrote once in a book that he was only ever without any pain during the end of his rehab phases. That might come as a surprise to some, but think about it. Schedules are getting ever more packed with more and more matches coming up, and the same footballers are taking part in all of them. Pain management and keeping your performance level at its peak at the same time can be a tricky thing to accomplish. So let's ask the question of how footballers are dealing with that pressure on an all-new episode of Talking Football Extra. My name is Niklas Wiltagen and I'm delighted to welcome Arne Steinberg, who is a journalist working for the German broadcaster RD. Welcome to the show, Arne. Thank you. Hi. So the reason why I wanted you on this show is because you worked on a project called Pill and Kick, which obviously covered the use of N-sites and other painkillers within football. You've, in the past, also worked for the RD Doping Redaktion, which uh, has been a group of journalists uncovering doping scandals within a ro wide range of different sports over the last few years. So you're pretty much very well versed within this topic. So let's start off with a classic line that those of us who've paid a bit of attention to doping within football have heard a lot. And that line goes as follows. Doping within football doesn't make any sense because football is a complicated team sport. It doesn't make a team better because it doesn't improve the skills that are important on the football pitch. That defense is rolled out time and time again whenever the topic comes up. But if you put that line of defense under a bit of scrutiny, does it hold up? Well, I certainly don't think so. Obviously, I'm not in a position to tell people what to believe and what not to believe. But I think if you look at the facts... In professional football, if you look at the workload that professional players have nowadays, you see that it has become like a new sport, basically, if you compare it to um, a period like maybe 25 years ago, the distances covered, like the the length of the high-intensity runs. So you've got a lot of indicators already that show that uh, we deal with a sport that is um, really demanding. And at the same time, we've got progress in um, science too, in sports science. So I would be really surprised if these two facts would not combine into um, yeah, people trying to look for um, yeah, the extra 5% maybe by yeah, referring to substances or methods that are not legal. And we know that there are methods and substances that are illegal and that can help athletes. So um, I think there are lots lots and lots of doping cases um, over the last year, uh, couple of years in athletics, in, in other sports too, that show that um, if you want to improve your endurance, if you want to yeah, recover faster after a competition, then there is a possibility to do that. So I'm not saying that football is a sport that is like um, touched by doping in 100% of the cases and in all the games and all the matches, but I am not convinced by the arguments saying that there are tests and there are not a lot of positive tests, so football essentially would not have a doping problem. So I just think that football is huge, hugely important too for media and, and business, and there's practically nobody in football that has an interest in, you know, tackling the problem mm. and like being totally transparent and open about it. So if you think about it then, if you have players who play 60 plus matches a year, so they need to recuperate their fitness levels more quickly than a normal person basically can do and still be able to run 14 kilometers three times a week, basically, which is, uh, you know, if, if you've done a bit of running, that is a lot. So what sort of 
regimes in terms of, you know, things bordering on doping or doping in itself make sense for footballers then? How can they improve their game through the use of illegal drugs or treatments or, you know, other things that are maybe not quite legal? So I'm not saying that professional football as we know it is only possible because of doping. That would not be true. But I think, as I said before, there are certain um, things that can help you improve your performance and performance levels and keep them up over a longer period of time. So um, there has been progress in science and in, in training and in management of, of the workload, yes. So people, uh, they can, or athletes can recover uh, more easily. But I think... The biggest problem that we face right now is what happens after an injury because there are lots of players getting injured, obviously, and sometimes they um, are away from the team for a couple of months. So they maybe go uh, to see a doctor that they know personally and then they're out of the influence and out of the control of their club. And their club basically pays them, so he should, well, the club should know um, what the player does, but, but essentially they don't know. This has been confirmed by um, several team doctors from the Bundesliga. So I'm saying that there is a window of possibility here so that um, people maybe can come back a week earlier or maybe two weeks earlier than, than anticipated or than planned. Because um, there's a famous quotation by Pep Guardiola who said that if like a player is out for eight weeks, I want him back in seven weeks. And if he's out for four weeks, I want him back in three weeks' time. So um, this already shows that you know the um, managers and the coaches, they are very, very demanding. And obviously, a player has only a limited time during their career, so they can only play for like 18 years tops. And then they, of course, have to squeeze in as much as they possibly can. And sometimes it's about getting the next contract. And yeah, if you only look at the factors that are important for performance in football you can already see that if you want to improve your performance under athletical terms then obviously you can make use of substances that improve your oxygen level in your blood so um, stuff that helps you uh, even after the 80th minute maybe if you have to go uh, make a run again and if you Maybe train hard, you can do it, but if you take a substance, then you can do it too. And what has been proven in the past is also the use of amphetamines, of stuff that helps you focus or that um, helps you concentrate. So um, I don't really see why this should not help a footballer improve their performance. Obviously, football is a complex sport. There are 11 players on the pitch. You have to be technically and tactically, you have to be very competent, yes. But I think from your athletical and psychological yeah, settings, I call it this way, um, there's stuff to improve and there's room to improve. So I think, yeah, this already shows that um, football is not a clean sport, maybe as we sometimes think it is. Well, I mean, it stands to reason that if you can do that high-intensity sprint in the 90th minute, that might give you that goal chance that clinches the semi-final in the Champions League or whatever game you're playing, and your opponent can't, you're gaining a massive advantage. And, of course, these means, you know, you can get there through training, sure, but given the workload and given how many matches there are in throughout an entire season, 
I mean, how much training can you squeeze in towards those matches might be a good question to ask. Because as you see, when you look at the lineups, many teams play basically with um, not a lot of variation, even at the top of the European game. Uh, but when you point out these things, football federations and clubs oftentimes point to the fact that there are no or very few players getting caught in uh, doping controls. Which begs the question, how vigorously are footballers tested throughout an entire season? And how vigorously are they tested when they're injured? Well, it's a very good question. So, first of all, I think if we talk about the fairy tale of football being a clean sport, then you have to address this. I mean, if you don't test, you necessarily won't get any positive tests. So, um, there's thousands of professional football players in the world and the um, official numbers uh, of doping tests that are being done in football, they range at around... 40,000 uh, every year. So um, there's been a calculation that has been done and that is always cited very, um, very intensely and with a lot of uh, <laughs> enthusiasm. And this um, calculation says that every professional footballer in the world is probably tested every three and a half years statistically. So this obviously raises concerns and these concerns, they are getting even even stronger if you consider that, um, especially in the Bundesliga, it's football controlling itself. So um, it's like the football that has a lot of power, as I said before. And um, obviously they work together with NADA, which is the national anti-doping agency in, in Germany. But NADA doesn't have the means and the resources to... Um, you know, go like into all the clubs and turn up at the training center uh, unannounced and just say that, okay, we want to test your players now. And if you're a player, the risk of you being uh, tested on match day is like really low because there's always two players from each team. And you've got like 23 players um, in your squad that always shows that um, the chance of being tested is really small. That does not say that all the players are using doping, but I just want to explain why I think the testing system does not necessarily work, especially if you consider the last one and a half years when the anti-doping system also in Germany basically came to a halt, came to a stop and no tests were possible. So um, this even opened up the window even further for people that maybe try to use substances or uh, methods that are legal. And the other question you asked was how can they test players that are not training at the club? Well, basically they don't and they can't because if you're a professional athlete, like uh, if you maybe are tested by agencies that are um, being paid by World Athletics, then you can be, you know, tested early in the morning unannounced. But for footballers, for professional footballers in Germany, this does not happen. So they fill out the system. Yes, they make use of a um, digital system where they have to log in and where they have to state where they are. But at least from what I know is that they are not getting tested at a surprise maybe in the morning so for all other athletes that are in sports that are not called football this is completely normal but in football um, it does not happen why is it important that the uh, that a doping test is taken in the morning i mean it's important for uh, urine first of all if you test the urine samples of of, of athletes in general um, you can always find substances you can uh, do blood tests as well but here again we have to consider that 
even WADA, which is the World Anti-Doping Agency, so the governing body that like groups together all the national anti-doping agencies and that gives out the WADA code. It's not a big business, you know, it's not like a big, that they have like a big team of people that can do whatever they want because they have unlimited resources. So, um, uh, the anti-doping agencies in the countries, they have to be very uh, clever with the, uh, with the money that they get uh, because it's not a lot. And essentially, this shows that the possibilities of uh, scientific performance enhancement, uh, they're always two, maybe three years ahead of um, the anti-doping testing. So um, if there's a new substance, a new method, until it comes to the, uh, until it is on the water list, it always takes time. And there's always like a, a gap between what is possible and what is feasible for the um, testing agencies. It's a bit of a horse race. And, uh, you know, those, those who are testing are basically losing that race one step at a time. So some listeners may at this point say, great, this makes sense. But I haven't heard anything about any scandals that German football has produced over the years. But there have been a few doping scandals in the Bundesliga and in German football, haven't there? Yeah, there have been. Um, there have been players that were tested um, positive. Um, one is going back like 25 years. The first one who was Roland Wohlfahrt, uh, a striker um, who was tested positive um, after an indoor tournament, I think it was. And um, he was uh, tested positive, I think, because he was using a substance that was on the forbidden list, if you, if you might call it this way, that was supposed to limit his appetite. I think this was the um, official explanation, but I mean, you don't have to look uh, exclusively at German football. So um, obviously there have not been like major doping scandals uh, in this nation and in this sport, but that does not mean that there is no doping. So if you look at football in general, there are um, doping cases taking place. You've got players playing even now and serving doping bans. You've got Andre Onana, the Ajax goalkeeper, who's still out until November because he's um, banned. Uh, you've got Fred from Manchester United. He was sanctioned too. You've got Simon Nasri, who got sanctioned a couple of years back. So these cases, they do happen. And um, this essentially was one of the reasons why we said, you know, as journalists, we want to uh, focus on this problem because we were asking exactly the same question. We were saying, why are there so uh, many people saying that football cannot be doping free, but why is there no positive test? So um, we tried to come up with a team and resources and a lot of time to do research. And then, um, you know, we started to work on it. We, we read the research that's, that has been available. Uh, we looked at different countries, uh, Italy, where it was very prominent in the 90s, and France as well. Uh, so you've got two big clubs like Juventus and Olympique de Marseille, where um, doping has been proven. So, yeah, I would be astonished if it would not happen right now, anywhere, somewhere. Wasn't there also a case in, in Germany with a physician working out, out of Freiburg in the 70s and 80s? Yes. His name escapes me right now, but um, he obviously treated a lot of footballers over the years and he used illegal methods. So, I mean, we know that these things have been taken place in the past. It's only a case that we learned about them, well, 20, 30 years afterwards. So um, we might learn about this period of time in 20 or 30 years about what was going on back now, basically. 
So I think you have to keep that in mind as well. Um, I think we're going to take a little break and after the break, we'll be back talking about pain management. back uh, so let's change topics ever so slightly another issue that has been discussed rather vividly over the last few years is the use of insides within the world of football so let's give our listeners some background info as many of them may not be aware of what an algesic or an insight is how do these drugs work why are they taken and you might not know most of you may have already taken an insight on analgesic at some point in your life it's quite common so let's get the ball rolling what are analgesics and insights and when should you take them so obviously for pain management and uh, lifestyle we're living right now um, painkillers they have an important role so if you consider yourself having an operation and you wake up what you get is basically a painkiller that helps you to, um, you know, sustain the pain and to get through it and to get your uh, body ready again. So if you're sick, if you have pain, you can take painkillers. They're available everywhere in all the pharmacies and drugstores, sometimes even without a prescription. So if you've got a small headache, um, you can go to the pharmacy down the road and get um, ibuprofen or paracetamol. Uh, so these two are really common in Germany or aspirin as well. So this is like one of the big, you know, developments of modern medicine, I'd say. So uh, it's good that they are there, but that does not mean that it's always good to take them. So, you know, if we, we don't talk about football here, it's just like everyday life. If you've got a headache and you don't feel fit for work and you don't feel yourself being, you know, ready and you uh, think that you might get sick, uh, what a lot of people do is that they take uh, a painkiller and that they go to work anyway. So they do that for one day, maybe two days, and then their body just says stop, and then they get sick for like a couple of days. So pain or, or weakness in your body is a warning sign, and this warning sign cannot be you know, turned off only and exclusively by the use of painkillers. So you uh, have to listen to your body, and then you have to take a decision whether or not to go to the doctor, and from my perspective, the use of painkillers and also the prescription of painkillers is a big problem because it is the solution that everybody chooses, you know, directly. I, I've, you know, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of running and I've, I've talked to some other runners who said, well, yeah, I just ran a half marathon the other day. And, you know, in, in order to, to keep on training the following day, I'm actually popping a few, you know, insights, which... Uh, stands for non-steroid anti-inflammatory drug like ibuprofen which is just the most common one all over the world but as you said taking those drugs is not without any risk so what what are the risks if you and the dangers of using NSAIDs and other painkillers if you do so over an extended period of time so if you stick with this example of uh, running like the main stress factor for uh, your body is the muscle muscle weakness and muscle tiredness you know, if you ignore the warning sign of your body saying stop, you need like to recover, you need a break, you go on and on and on because you take painkillers again and then again and again. At one point, your muscle will just tear and then you've got a big, big problem. If you've got a muscle that does not work and does not function properly, you're out for a couple of weeks. 
So um, this also applies for football necessarily, because if you take painkillers again and again, your body is facing the risk of, you know, having a much bigger problem. So sometimes it is better to take a break and to recover. And what's also important is that there is a proven link, a link that has been scientifically proven, between the intake of painkillers and cardiovascular problems. So um, heart attacks, for example, and um, cardiovascular malfunctions, which uh, is obviously a big, big problem. And again, people might say not necessarily for younger people, but for older people, but that does not mean that it is good, you know, uh, to, to ignore these facts. And obviously what we all know, because it's a famous case in German football history um, from, uh, from Ivan Klasnitsch, a striker who played for Werder Bremen at the time and he had to have kidney surgery and he had to get a new kidney because he was instructed to take painkillers um, during his career and he already had a disease I think it was and um, he was instructed to take painkillers and now he's um, still you know facing the problems of this so kidney problems liver problems they all can happen if you take painkillers over a longer period of time. Yeah, I mean, the use of NSAIDs and kidney failure are actually directly linked if you overuse NSAIDs over a period of time. Uh, I, I think there was the case of Sydney Sam, who actually failed a medical a couple of years back, three or four years back now, uh, where the uh, doctor who did uh, his medical stated that his kidney values were not good enough to compete in professional sports and i mean that i'm speculating it's pure speculation on my part but the intake of insights might have played a role here as i said at the top of the show you were involved in a project called pit and kick can you tell us a little bit about that yeah so um, as i said before um in the editorial team and in the research cooperation that we did between the rd doping editorial team and the research platform collective we tried to focus on uh, doping in football and when we started to do the research one of the things that came up in the first place and something that was talked about and discussed by basically all the people that we talked to was painkiller abuse so um we always well, not always, but we mostly ask the same questions to um, managers, to former players, to active players, to team doctors. And they always focused on the problem that football has with painkillers. So at one point we decided that the first episode that we do, so like the first chapter, if you like, in the story would be on uh, painkillers. So we took months and months and months of research to come up with a 45-minute documentary and some texts on kickonpills.org, so there you can find the English version too. So yeah, the results were that we, you know, were able to confirm that football has a major problem with painkillers. So um, Nevin Subotic, for example, former Bundesliga player, he went on the record saying that um, ibuprofen was dropped like Smarties in, in professional football, so like uh, M&Ms, if you like. So this quote already shows that there is something that we need to talk about and um, we did talk about it we talked about it with team doctors with players as i said before and you know the research that has been done by fifa for example also showed that on the doping control forms that players have to fill out there is always always an insight so there's always a uh, uh, a substance that helps players to get rid of pain sometimes even two or three substances 
in one player. So that always shows that it is one of the major factors in um, pain management and also in recovery management in, in football. So we try to address this. We try to talk to um, the clubs about this and the federations and you know, raise awareness on this topic, also on amateur level, because we uh, did a survey that showed that a lot of people take painkillers exclusively for mental reasons. So to be fit and to be ready for the game without having pain. <laughs> well, <laughs> you cannot take them as, as a prophylactically. I mean, that, <laughs> that's not how they work. But the German Journal of Sports Medicine actually published a study back in March of 2021, so this year, focusing on data made available through Nordis doping tests. And uh, those tests require professional athletes to fill out a form where they declare all the meds they've taken over the last seven days. And that study showed that around 33% of the players had taken at least one anside or painkiller over the last seven days, according to the study. Are those numbers a reason for concern? Obviously, yes. Yes, yes, they are. Because this study basically confirmed the research that we've been doing so far. So obviously, we don't have the means to analyze and to go through all the um, anti-doping control forms that have been done in the last five years in Germany or in German football. This was only possible for um, NADA, which is good, uh, but they've taken a look at this to, you know, uh, have evidence. And this evidence shows that one in three players uses painkillers in the buildup of a match, which is a lot. So if you take like 15 players uh, that are playing for your club each week, it's five of them using painkillers, maybe one, maybe two. Maybe on Tuesday, maybe on Thursday, but also on Saturday when the when the game is happening. So I think these numbers are reason for concern because it shows how big the influence is of painkillers and how normal it is to use them and how, you know, the complex system of professional football with managers who have certain demands, uh, with coaches who have demands, with team doctors that are necessarily there to protect the player but at one point they are also employed by the club so the club can always say hey if you don't follow our uh, principles and if you don't listen to us you're free to go <laughs> uh, well take your hypocritic oath and shove it somewhere else then uh, what what really scared me about this study though is is the fact that 14 percent of youth players were taking insights and additionally, in Germany, it turns out there's a drug available uh, that has been not used quite regularly, but it's popping up more and more year by year, which is called metamizole, which is a drug only available to horses, dogs, cows and pigs here in Norway, where I am in Norway, because in Norway it's not <laughs> deemed to be fit for human consumption because of the high danger of liver damage. So... That is what players are basically shoving into themselves. You were talking about those testing forms that the players have to fill in. Are it actually the players who fill in those testing forms or are the team doctors? Well, it's the team doctors from from what I know filling, filling out these forms um, because they're uh, responsible for doing this and they're responsible for the player in the build-up of the week. So um, during training, uh, they monitor and they control what um, the players are uh, given. But, um, you know, players are always um, going home after training. So if they go maybe to a pharmacy, they can, you know, get uh, the same um, insights that, um, available without prescription. So that's 
out of control, uh, out of <laughs> control if you take the metaphor and also if you consider the uh, fact that team managers can't control it. So, uh, yeah, I think it's it's a big problem, a problem that has to um, be addressed, that, you know, needs to be talked about also starting from the bottom up, so starting in youth football and amateur football, but also from top down because Bundesliga and all the players, they're always role models for a lot of players and it also is a topic for media coverage because um, how often have I heard the phrase of players being brave and being heroes for playing through the pain and just taking like a painkiller to to get through a match or maybe score the decisive goal so um, I don't think we need that that much because you know it's always human beings and it's not like machines that we're talking about here you know they have a life after their career as well and when they're 40 they still need to be able to to walk and to run and there are a lot of cases that show that they uh, destroy their bodies during their career and i think that's good mm, uh, yeah i mean most famously there was that quote by marvin Dutch in a post-match interview where he uh, said that he wasn't painting a half-time break and he told the doc to give him a pill and uh, then he went on to score the winning goal and said well doc it was a good pill which is probably not the thing that we should be aiming for here. I've spoken to a few people who've been involved in medical departments in the Bundesliga in the past. None of them wanted to come directly onto the show. But the, the creator that, that I heard from them time and time again was that there is too little prevention and the influence of medical department is often limited. But that has to change if we want to do something about this problem, if we want players to take less insights, right? Yes, the team doctors are one of the major points that we need to, uh, you know, adjust in the system or um, in in the way that professional football works. But it's not only them. So we also have to talk about the responsibility of coach, of manager who are very demanding and they obviously need their players for fulfilling their goals to reach their goals and you know to be like uh, to be ready for the games and to perform but the fact that very famous coaches like that have been working in the Bundesliga for lots and lots of years very successfully they cannot expect their players to play through the pain by you know, putting pressure on them. If the players don't want to play, then they don't play. But the thing is, as I said before, the coaches have a lot of influence. And, you know, if they're not happy with a team doctor, then they can easily get rid of the team doctor. And then there's maybe coming someone coming in who is not as restrictive. So I think our research has already, you know, raised awareness among the players. So we know that there's been lots of discussions in, 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 you know, during team meetings and during in Facebook, WhatsApp groups of, of professional football players about this topic because not 100% of the players use painkillers all the time. There are some that are really, you know, cautious about the topic and there are some that only can function if they use painkillers. So um, we have to, you know, make people and make players aware of the consequences um, we have to raise awareness on this. We have to, um, you know, reconsider the role of, of football in our life if we are amateur players. So I think if you play in a, a non-league uh, division on, on Sunday or Saturday morning, then it's too big a risk to play through the pain with painkillers because you have to get back to work on Monday. 
So um, I think you can do it, yes. And if you want to do it, do it. But you have to be aware of the consequences. Mm. Well, so far, there, there seems to be little sign of change. Uh, the National Anti-Doping Agency in Germany has a program that is designed to educate players and staff members in order to further prevention of the abuse of meds like NSAIDs and other analgesics. Um, however, the professional sector hasn't really shown an awful lot of interest, according to that report by Nada that I quoted uh, in, at the start there. Why do you think that Bundesliga clubs are so reluctant to uh, look into that matter? I really don't have an answer to it, <laughs> to be honest, because let, let me put it this way. If you have a player who's on a, a very good contract and you pay him a lot of money so that he plays for your team uh, week in and week out, and at one point during the season, the player gets a problem because he has been playing um, a lot of games and then traveling, not enough time for recovery. They had to go to the national team and everything that happens during a normal season. So the player gets a problem and he goes to the team doctor and says, hey, give me a painkiller so that I can train and I can, that I can play. So this goes on for two weeks and then the player is injured because let's pretend he's got a muscle tear, muscle injury, and he's out for two months. So then you've got a player on the payroll that's uh, not playing for you for two months and you're paying him anyway. So from my perspective, it would be good to say to the player, hey, if you've got like small pain, come to us directly and let's try to solve the problem with um, the medical team And if you're injured, you don't play. But the money that football loses and the money that football clubs lose every year to, uh, due to the fact that they don't treat their players right is maybe the biggest and strongest argument that um, helps us to you know, address the problem of painkiller abuse. Because as I said before, everybody, every stakeholder in the system has their own interest. And nobody really has the interest of, you know, being more cautious and being more open about the dangers for your health if you're a professional player. But we have to change that. I mean, we have to discuss the consequences. We have to address the role and we have to at least have an open and transparent discussion about it. So if people then still decide that they want to take painkillers, uh, just let them do it. You know, it's not like that we can... Uh, prevent people from um, doing stupid things that happens everywhere in the world but we have to discuss it it cannot be like a, a taboo that nobody talks about mm. because that would be that would be stupid because if we go the further steps down the road they um are it's the same discussion if you talk about doping in football it's like um, a parallel discussion a discussion that you can have does it help yes is it bad for your health yes do we need to stop it yes it's like always the same <laughs> well, this is going to be my last question here, and uh, it's kind of a bigger one. It is as follows. Should the use of NSAIDs and other pain medication be forbidden by the World Anti-Doping Agency? Or should there be stricter limitations at least? Well, as always in life, there's multiple answers to this question. So first of all, if you consider the official WADA code, which is like the holy bible of anti-doping, Then, from my perspective and from my legal understanding, insights and painkillers should be well should be put on the um, on the list because to be put on the list, a substance or a method has to fulfill at least two out of three criteria. 
And these criteria are one, danger for your health, two, helps you to strengthen your performance, and three, um, violates the ethics of the sport. So if you look at the painkillers, as I said before, it is bad for your health, so we know that. It is performance enhancing, so if you are able to um, play through the pain, you can be better, you can play, you can score another goal. So that would be two out of two, and three, well, the third one would be the violation of um, the ethics of sport. And from my perspective, if you're only able to do sports when you take painkillers, you maybe should not do sports. I think for me it's clear it's three out of three, but apparently um, WADA doesn't seem to see it the same way as I do, so they have not put um, insights on the list, not even on the monitoring list. So the monitoring list is a list that is revised and um, you know reworked on every year. So um, maybe if there's a new substance coming up, there's scientific research that is being done, and then essentially there's a decision being taken whether or not to put the substance on the list. But um, for insights and painkillers, this process does not happen because obviously, and there I agree with WADA, it would be a major bureaucratic task to control this and to, you know, deal with that. So um, as we said, um, painkillers are not always bad. So if you're in pain, you're allowed to use painkillers. That's not a problem. But if you put them on the um, on the list, on the water list, then that entails, you know, a series of consequences uh, that, you know, demand a lot of work. And I don't see it happening in the, in the future. Although from my perspective, as I said before, um, painkillers, they fulfill all the criteria to be put on the list, essentially. Mm. Yeah, it, it would be a Herculean task to control that. Absolutely. Uh, thanks ever so much for coming on the show, Arne. It's been uh, really enlightening. Uh, tell our listeners where they can find you on Twitter and where they can find your work. Um, they can find me on Twitter at Steinberg-Arne, so uh, no, underscore, so I say it again, <laughs> at Steinberg-Arne, and my work is, um, you know, as I said before, for ARD Doppelredaktion in German, it's the ARD editorial team. Excellent. Uh, so this is it for another edition of Talking Fußball Extra. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, where our Twitter handle is at Talking Fußball. The Fantasy Boys, Flo and James, are going to be back with an all-new episode at the end of the week. I hope that you all tune into that one as well. Until next time, it is goodbye for now.